you very much. Thank you, Pastor Charles. Thank you, guys. You can take your seats. So, in the last uh, couple of weeks, if you haven't joined us online or been in one of our campuses, we've been focusing on the one part of the Christmas story that actually didn't happen the day that Jesus was born. It happened probably 15, 18 months later, and it's the story of, often we refer to them as the wise men or the magi coming. And really, Jesus is the greatest gift. When we think, you know, I want you to sort of pause around, I know you're wrapping presents and meals and organising family events, and we're doing the same as a whole family, but I want you to pause and think today about what you really need in life, because we often assume what we need the most uh, is material ob- objects, you know, like gifts. Think about maybe the expectations of what you think you're going to receive this Christmas from family or loved ones. But really, material objects don't actually meet the basic needs that we have. Things like love, forgiveness, relationship, peace, hope, strength when there's difficult times. And even though our Western commercial world tells us you need the latest iPhone 13, that is actually a lie. It's not true. Jesus is the greatest gift. Nothing that you receive that's materially made this Christmas or any other time in your life is the greatest gift you'll ever receive. And that's what we want to focus on today through this particular story of these, well, really they were Persians that came to find Jesus when he was a toddler. And so I, I want to challenge you not to fall into the trap this Christmas of thinking that some object or gift that you receive that won't last, you can't take it with you into eternity, is the true value or somehow measures the value of what you're worth or I think sometimes what we do, maybe not on purpose, but we measure the value of the relationship of the person who gives us a gift based on the monetary amount that the gift is worth. And I want to challenge you not to do that because certainly from my experience, from all the gifts I've ever received, I would gladly give up everything for the relationships that I have in my life. So it's not really, you know, I know we give out of love and I'm not minimising that we should, could and we're going to do that over Christmas, no doubt. But it's not, it doesn't represent the true value of the relationship. And when we think about Jesus, that's exactly what God has done for us, is he put us in relationship with him through his son, Jesus. Relationship's the most important thing. Your relationship with God through Jesus Christ and your relationships you have in your life, your family, your friends, they're more important. So even though, you know, I'll get some gifts, you'll get some gifts this Christmas. Not amen, Pastor Charles. You just got a gift. At least he's giving me an amen, but even though you'll get gifts, Pastor Charles, do you know the most valuable thing in our lives is not the person giving us an object, it's actually their presence, their support, their love, their attention, their correction. Ongoingly having them invest in who we are and and sacrificing themselves to be with us and journey through life together And that's the most important thing you can give to somebody else is actually all of who you are and investing in their life so they flourish and grow to be the best person they can be. Now, we, I think intuitively we know that, but our 
our world is, you know, in, in, in our culture in Australia, we're bombarded with messages about how we need this thing. And, you know, when you look at commercial, you know, on whether it's Facebook or television or in the movies, when you see commercials, it's all about, they're not really selling you the object, but an experience of happiness and joy. The trouble with happiness, of course, is so circumstantial. And so I want you to think about your relationship with God today and your relationship with those in your life today and count that as the most precious and valuable thing. Now, we've been talking about the Magi and from Matthew's Gospel. So Matthew um, was a Levi, so he was in, the, in, in like a tribe of priests. But he, his sort of work, if you like, was a tax collector and he personally knew Jesus. He, he, he was one of the original disciples. But he writes an account, he writes his version or his memoirs about his time with Jesus, which we call the Gospel of Matthew. And in chapter 1, he starts by explaining how Jesus is connected to the divine sort of lineage of kingship through David. So you have these two sort of blocks of 14 generations, and you can read chapter 1. And then we have Jesus' actual birth. So you have the shepherds, the angels, the announcement with Mary. But then at the near where we've picked up in Matthew chapter 2, we have this story of these Persian wise men coming along and giving gifts to Jesus. And we're focused on the three gifts that they give Jesus, which we heard there. One of them is rosemary. That's for the lamb, the lamb Christmas Day lunch. Well, no, one of them was gold, which represented the fact that Jesus was a king. There was The reason they gave Jesus these gifts, these infant, this 15, 18-month-old child, these gifts, was they recognised he was a different sort of king now, they were from Babylon. These, are, these wise men, these magi, it's pronounced, are Persian astrologers. But they had worked out by watching the stars that someone significant had just been born. And in their culture, they would watch this, this particular tribe called the magi. They had like a priestly function in Babylon, similar to the Levites at the temple in Jerusalem. Very different theologies, but similar sort of function. And so the Magi were watching the stars because in their belief system, that indicated when someone significant on earth would become king. And so they see a star and that's what leads them to bringing these gifts, gold, frankincense, which was used in the Jewish temple to worship Yahweh. So the, the whole connection to Jesus is not just a human baby, but is God incarnate or in flesh form coming to redeem us and the third gift frankincense oh sorry myrrh is the anointment of death so when someone died in the Jewish culture they would often use that to anoint the body um, prior or just after burial and so these are these are prophetic gifts that speak to the nature of who this child really was but today I want us to read the whole story and I want to highlight just a couple of things about why does Matthew include these pagan priests from Persia in the story of Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles there, whether it's on your digital device or you've got a, I still like a hard copy uh, myself, but it'll come up on the screen as well. So Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to start from verse 1. So after Jesus was born in Judea during the time of King Herod, let me just pause there. I know I'm halfway through the first sentence, but notice the word after Jesus was born. So we know from the rest of the story 
So in the end, King Herod gets very threatened. He's a narcissistic, brutal ruler. He's a Gentile sort of governing Jerusalem on behalf of the Romans. So he's not Jewish, but he was known for his brutality. And so we know Jesus' age because he decrees that he wants all the two-year-olds and under put to death because he's threatened by this news that they, these guys, these magi tell him that some king's just been born. Can you imagine being the ruler over a whole major city and you're a, you've got this tyrannical sort of nature and then these other rulers from another nation came and say, well, a king's just been born here. Well, you're going to feel threatened. So we know that it's after Jesus is born and we know because of what happens at the end of this story around about probably Jesus is 15, 18 months old. And so King Herod's part of the story. I won't unpack that anymore, but he's this really, we know from antiquity, so archaeology and ancient documents, he was not a nice man. He would kill people without thinking twice about it to protect his own power source and to govern brutally over the Jewish people. So he, he, he hears the Magi, look at this, the Magi from the east, now that's Babylon or Persia, that they came to Jerusalem and they're asking around, right? So they, they haven't gone directly to Herod, now they're asking around. Now here's another thing we know from antiquity, there's not three Magi. I know the Christmas cards look beautiful, um, but there could be over a hundred or a couple of hundred because this is a priestly tribe. The word Magi just simply is a tribal name, a Babylonian priestly tribe. And they had servants, they had slaves, they had people to assist them. So this is an entourage that comes in Jerusalem. It's going to be noticed. And so Herod hears that these Babylonian priests have turned up and they're asking, where is the new king being born? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Notice that phrase. So we saw, this is the Magi saying, we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That's a (laughs) toned down version. Uh, He was really irate. And all Jerusalem with, with him, by the way, which is interesting because, I mean, we know the whole pattern of the Jewish people at the time not recognising really who Jesus was, right? So they're disturbed. What's this thing about a king? We don't really want another king. Verse 4, when he called together all the people's chief priests, so they're the people that we know, the Sadducees, you know, the, the Pharisees, you know, all the priests in the temple. Herod calls them together, the teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah. Now, Messiah means anointed one, the deliverer. So we have a couple of different titles for Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word that literally means like saviour. A Messiah is the chosen one to deliver. So where's this Messiah being born? And so in Bethlehem, in Judea, this is the Jewish priest replying to Herod's question. They said, this is what the prophet wrote. And they quote directly from Micah chapter 5 here, the priest's where it says, But you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Bethlehem's an important place in the Jewish history story. Uh, Jacob buries his wife Rachel there. King David, it's his hometown. The name Bethlehem actually means house of bread. Now, Jesus said later on, I am the bread of life. And so this, this, there's all these other tones in this story. That's, we know that 
Humanly speaking, Joseph and Mary are forced to go to Bethlehem because Joseph is from there and the Romans are doing, doing a census around the whole empire and you had to go back to the husband's place of birth to be included in the census. That's what forced them back there. And of course, they're still there when the Magi turn up. So verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. I want you to note that. And found out from them the exact time that star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they heard the king, or sorry, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now remember, that's part of their theology. And by the way, it's in the Old Testament. It's not just the Babylonians that believe that. Ancient Jews believe stars were indicators of heavenly divine events. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. Now three times we've had the word worship. When they're asking around in Jerusalem where, the, where this child is, this newborn king of the Jews, they said, we've come to worship him. Herod says, well, when you find him, come and tell me where he is so I can worship him. That's a complete lie, by the way. But at least Herod acknowledges why they're there. And then here again, we actually have them worshipping this infant baby toddler. Jesus, they bow down and they worship him. And then they open their treasures. This is what we've been reading about. And they present to him with gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. And we've talked about what they represent. But verse 12, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. They go a different way because they know Herod has no intention to worship this child. So who, who is the Magi? Well, again, just put on hold your Christmas card nativity images of them turning up with the baby in the manger because that didn't happen. Uh, Jesus is nearly two years old. But this priestly Persian pagan tribe have this understanding that this king is going to be born and he's going to be unique to all the kings in, we'll call it the Middle East for our language today. He's a different sort of king. And so, interestingly, if you're taking notes, the Magi appear in the Old Testament. Not the specific word, because it's written in a different language, it's written in Hebrew. But in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 11, they're mentioned there, the magicians. So in English, where the word magic came from was from this Greek word about doing like spells and, and using we would consider occultish practices um, for divine information and knowledge. That's where we get the word magic from. But there's no direct English translation of Magi because it's the name of the actual priestly tribe from Persia. They're also mentioned in Jeremiah 39, verse 2. They're actually part of, I'm going to not say this right, I asked my friend Fred the other day how to pronounce it and I still can't get it right. But Nebuchadnezzar, who was king in Babylon, they were part of his rulership, governance. So the Magi are a tribe of Persian priests. They're not, they don't follow Yahweh specifically. They've got other gods, and, but they sort of adapt or take in the story of Jesus. The question is, how did they know that Jesus was going to be born? How did they know to look for a star? And how did they know when the star appeared that it was a Jewish boy that was going to be king? 
I'm glad you asked that question, by the way, because rest, the rest of my talk's based on that question. Now, they were sort of like noble priests. So for, all, for those of you who have been in the, you know, Christians for some time, you know sort of stories of Pharisees, Sadducees, the Levites. You know the idea of a priest um, who's responsible to worship God on behalf of the people and to bring atonement or sacrifices so that, that our God, Yahweh, would forgive them of their sins. That was the old system where they would make sacrifices and offerings to Yahweh. Well, in Babylon, they had similar systems. They weren't worshipping Yahweh, but they had animal sacrifice. We know from ancient documents and archaeological digs in Babylon or Persia today that they used fire. They had an altar that they believed was started by their God and they had to keep it burning eternally. Um, And they would take fire from that altar and light another altar to do their sacrifices to their gods. We know they used watching stars or astrology, um, astronomy, to actually work out what the divine beings wanted. That really was part of their religion. Interestingly enough, they believed in judgment after death and that you had to give an individual account of your life. Sounds very Jewish, doesn't it? There's actually some real similarities here. And so the other thing we know about them is they became a little bit involved in the government, but very high ranking. So in the Babylonian Persian Empire... They're part of Nebuchadnezzar's court that actually rules over Babylon and all their sub- subsequent um, cultures that they took over. So it's a little bit, a little bit like in the New Testament with the, the Levites and the priests of the temple governing. So what we would think of like a state leadership or, you know, uh, parliament. So they weren't just a bit like the Jewish system. It's very similar here. There's some parallels They weren't just responsible for the worship and the sacrifices to atone. They're also responsible to govern the the place and make decisions on behalf of the population um, to enforce their religion and their particular belief. The other thing we know through antiquity and, and, and research, that they had a very specific role in the Babylonian Empire, which was unique. They would appoint the next king. That's interesting, isn't it? Given the story, they've said, we've come to find the king of the Jews that's just been born. We want to worship him. Now, the theologians that I've been studying that unpack this detail, they literally call them kingmakers. In the Persian culture, in their own culture, they made kings. Another strange fact, at the time Jesus was born, they didn't have a king in power in their own culture. So even though they were kingmakers... They had absolute power to select the next king and they would do that through divination and a whole range of other things that we wouldn't agree with. But that was part of their role as the governing body for that culture. And their previous king, Phrates, had actually been deposed and when Jesus was born, Babylon actually had no king. They were waiting to appoint the next king. And here we have these pagan Persian priests coming to find the king of the Jews. Now, how did they know to expect the birth of this new king? Well, here's the connection. The connection to the birth of Jesus and the Jews, Babylon, is actually the exile and the prophet Daniel. Now, if you know a little bit about Bible history, so I'm going to join some dots for you. 600 years before Jesus was born, The Israelites are not worshipping God as they should. 
They're taking advantage of each other using um, weights and measures in their marketplaces to steal from people literally. They're not bringing their sacrifices to the temple and their offerings. They're really not doing what God has asked them to do and that they agreed to do. And so in the end, God allows the Babylonian Empire to take them captive. So this is 600 years before Jesus is born. They spend the next 70 years in captivity under Babylon. They have to live there. Now, some of you, you will also know Jeremiah 29. Now, we quote the first few verses of Jeremiah 29, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Now, when you quote that, the history of that statement is the prophet Jeremiah actually has to counteract a false prophet who had stood up and told the Jews in Babylon, in captivity, as slaves in Persia, that they wouldn't be there long. A false prophet stood up and said that. So Jeremiah stands up and says, that guy's a false prophet, but the Lord has good plans, not you personally, which is how we often read it, but for us as a group. So even though we're going to be here longer than what you've just been told, if you read through that whole chapter, some of you will know this verse from verse 5 in Jeremiah 29. God says to them, settle down in Babylon, build your house, get married, plant crops. And the next line is fascinating. Work for the prosperity and the peace of the city. So when God said that, he's talking about Babylon, not, not Jerusalem. So, of course, we know the story of Daniel. They're there for 70 years. Daniel rises to prominence within that system and eventually becomes what we would call a prime minister. He effectually becomes the person who's running the Persian Empire on behalf of these pagans. But, of course, God is with him. They recognise that his God is different to theirs because Daniel's interpreting dreams. He's doing all this other stuff that... By the way, the Magi would interpret dreams, but Daniel had this special ability that was different from them. And so it's actually Nebuchadnezzar that makes Daniel, now hold your breath here, he becomes the chief over all the Magi. And you can read that in Daniel, uh, in, um, let me get it here, Daniel 5.11. So this is the connection, 600 years before Jesus is born, Daniel and all the Israelites living in captivity bring all their Old Testament prophecies and scriptures and scrolls with them. Daniel rises to providence and, and, you know, importance, significance. He has this ruling power because of the grace and the, the power of God that rests on Daniel. And so he ends up running this group, these governing priests called Magi. And so... Clearly, there's a connection between, well, the prophecies that we read in the Old Testament about a saviour coming, they began to hear. And for at least 70 years, they heard them. The Magi understood. They probably took them and made them part of their own prophecies or their own worship. So they're looking for this king by the time Jesus is born. And so even though, again, they're all not their theology is right, they haven't, you know, they're not following Yahweh like you and I do, but they took on all of this information and became part of their religious system, even with all the other stuff that we wouldn't want to go near. Interesting enough, you know the story. After 70 years of living in captivity, so we're still about you know, 600, 500 years before Jesus is born, the king there lets the Jews go back to rebuild their city. 
And you know the story through Nehemiah, who, who builds the walls first. So in the ancient world, you can't have a city without walls for protection. They do that. Some years later, they start the temple, rebuilding the temple, but it takes them a bit longer. They sort of don't really do much for a while and God gets a bit annoyed with them. Then they eventually finish it. But Daniel doesn't return to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah returns, Ezra returns. We know some of the, you know, Ezekiel is part of this. When you read those Old Testament prophets, they're all in the same time period and prophesying in the same story. And so, of course, when you understand the connection between Daniel and the Magi, it's no wonder they're looking for this Jewish king that was promised. And it was the stars were going to tell the story when it took place. They had this insight because it became part of their own heritage. They took it in. So Daniel himself was one that probably unrolled the scrolls and explained the stories to the Magi. And even though Daniel's long dead, by the time obviously we get to Jesus, they're looking for this prophecy to be fulfilled. This pagan Persian priesthood is looking and listening for this tribe to be fulfilled. Daniel would have told them there was a great king coming and it was going to be like no other king. A monarch out of Bethlehem or Jerusalem. A divinely, a divine king, not like other kings, that would rule with justice that the world has never been seen. And so this entourage of Magi come in Jerusalem looking for this king to identify him. Now what can we learn from that story about the Magi and them coming? You can imagine... You can imagine if we had a, an entourage of hundreds of people coming into the city of Melbourne that looked different, spoke a different language, worshipped a different God, they're going to get noticed, right? And so what can we take from the Magi? Well, the first thing is their priority was to find Jesus. I had to check because I wasn't sure myself, but from ancient Babylon to Jerusalem is 1,450 kilometres. And it's mostly desert. So can you imagine getting, you know, so let's say there was 300 of them. Can you imagine getting 300 people together, you know, all your servants, your team, saying we're going to go and find this king, we've seen the star, this is the prophecy fulfilled, we have to go, and you have to walk. So even though you see them on camels, they probably didn't come on camels, I hate to spoil that one as well. Um, most people say, again in the know, most archaeologists probably say they either took horses or they walked was probably the common way but that's a 1500 mile trip and that's just to get Jerusalem then they have to walk to Bethlehem when they're told where this prophecy would actually be fulfilled that's some pursuit of Jesus pagans they're worshipping a whole lot of different gods in the mix God doesn't correct their theology he doesn't reject them he allows them to come and gives gifts to his son what what does it take to throw you off pursuing Jesus because that's what I thought when I, when I was reading and understood the journey and the, you know, the organisation, the time it would have taken to get there with all their food, their water resource. I mean, they, they didn't have Maccas, you know, they didn't have camel drive through you know, on, on the journey like we do today. Can you imagine 1,500 kilometres to go and find this infant that you believe is the king of all kings? That's some tenacity. And yet sometimes we can't even open our Bibles or talk to God. And we're Christians. They're not, they're not Christians in our understanding. They're pagans. They've probably added this God amongst all the other gods. But that pursuit to find this king, 
I mean, that's something we can take from this Christmas, right? And even though we don't always feel like we can pursue Jesus, there's a whole lot of interruptions, there's distractions. You know, we, we, sometimes we feel unworthy. Sometimes we feel like it's not worth it or, you know, I'm just too tired. I've had a bad week. You know, work's tough or I'm not, you know, things at home aren't good. Why would I go to church or why would I go to a small group? Why would I talk to God? He didn't answer my last prayer. But these guys are an example we should follow. Particularly when we are following the one true God and yet we can be so weak and fragile sometimes. Would you walk 1,500 kilometres through a desert in the ancient world putting your life at risk to find Jesus? Well, that's exactly what they did. It's incredible. We should make it our priority this Christmas to always pursue Jesus because he transforms us. He not only saves us from the penalty of our sin, he fills us with his Holy Spirit and he's with us all the time. He never forsakes or leaves us. And we, we need to, a new sort of understanding or depth of knowing what that means. I think sometimes as Christians we forget what it was like to live without God. Now, life's not necessarily easier with God. Now, we've been through the last two years like the rest of the world. But with God, you can get through it. It's very different when you've got the Holy Spirit. I think they knew that Jesus was the greatest gift. They may have not have understood who Jesus was like you and I do 2,000 years later, but nothing deterred them from their mission. Not even, you know, Herod's threat. They knew that Herod was going to kill this child. But that didn't stop them. They still went and found the child and they just didn't go back and tell Herod. <laughs> and by the way, Herod was not about to chase them because in the world stage at that time in history, um, the Babylonian Empire was to the east of Jerusalem the Roman Empire was to the west of Jerusalem and they had at least three major battles that we know of, like significant ones. They had more than that, but three big battles against Rome and Babylon and guess where they fought every time? In the middle, Jerusalem. So there's, there's all this other stuff going on here in terms of world history, um, but this baby is born in the centre of this conflict between these two great empires. But the Magi... They take the risk. They're going to find this Jesus no matter what. And we could take some learnings from that passion. And here's my final thing. The second thing I think we can take, and I sort of hinted at it before, they came to worship. Now, I know we've focused on the gifts because they were prophetic and they explain who Jesus, this infant, was. The gold, the frankincense and the myrrh. Forget the rosemary. But three times in that story that Matthew, who's Jewish... Very interesting, a Jewish man who's waiting for the Messiah himself and just follows Jesus as one of the disciples, writes in his account of Jesus these pagan, ungodly, unclean priests coming to worship Jesus. Three times Matthew mentions that. So they say that we've come to worship this newborn king of Jerusalem. Herod says, when you find him, come and tell me, I want to worship him. We know he was lying, but he recognises the genuine desire in them to worship this king and then of course when they find Mary and this infant the first thing they do is not give him the gifts the first thing they do is bow down and worship him so you know I think for us is in our modern culture of all the stuff that happens around Christmas we have to focus on worshiping Jesus and maybe this Christmas day, as a family, you could just read part of the story together over your meal. 
and just take a moment to worship by thanking God for Jesus Christ. Because again, I think the Magi knew that this gift was the greatest gift ever. Even though they didn't, you don't have to fully understand God to recognize something has happened. And that's what they did. They came to worship Jesus because they had a genuine desire to worship the newborn king that was different from every other king. And this is a priestly tribe of king makers. That was their role. But their purpose was to worship Jesus. That's why they traveled 1,500 kilometers this way. And they had, then they had to go back the other way, the same way they came. But they did it because they wanted to worship Jesus. Now, this is the challenge I felt. This is from me personally. I'm telling you my story, but I hope you'll get something from it. As I was thinking about this idea of them, the main reason they came was to worship Jesus, I felt God convict me because I come to Jesus for different reasons. I come because I'm upset about someone or I think I need something. I'm going to die without it. Or, you know, I've got a cold and, you know, I'm about to pass away or I need more money or... You know, I need the traffic to open up. I need a car park during Christmas shopping. We come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. We think Jesus is there like a genie. He's not, right? They, you know, they gave him gifts. We know that. And we, we need to give our gift of ourselves to Jesus as well. But they worshipped him first. That was the very reason they came. Pagans, not, not Jews, not... Christians, not Yahweh followers, not Jesus' disciples, pagans. But they knew that this king was different. Why don't you stand with me? I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. We're going to bring the service to an end. But I want to think about your relationship with God. Are you sort of relentless in your pursuit of Jesus or do things just easily distract you? I mean, thank God the Lord that you're here this morning worshipping God and that's the second thing when you come to Jesus you can ask Jesus for things right we know the Bible tells us to bring our prayers of thanksgiving our requests our supplications it's not that we can't do that but maybe the first thing we should be doing is worshipping him before we ask him for all the things that we think we need and it's not that we can't ask him for things we need but he already knows what we need I mean that's the great irony right So I want you to think about those two things right now in your own life and the busyness of this season in our culture. Let's continue to pursue Jesus no matter what. Let's not get distracted. Let's not complain. Let's not not connect with the God who saved us through free gift of grace. And let's always worship Jesus first and foremost before we ask or demand anything. If you've never made a decision or an inquiry about who this Jesus is, Maybe it's the first time you've ever come to a church service. But you've heard at least today a little bit about who this Jesus is from me explaining some of the the scriptures to you. I want to tell you, if that's you, Jesus makes it very easy to come to him. Sometimes we hear that, you know, if you're not a good person, God's not going to accept you. If you haven't done right things or you've done wrong things, well then, you know, clearly you couldn't even walk into a church building. But in actual fact, when Jesus was older and he he was doing all his teaching for over three years about how life really works from God's point of view, why we're here, why he made us, why he loves us, he made it so easy to follow him. He actually said, 
if you're thirsty. It's a metaphor, not literal. But if you feel like you're not satisfied, there's always something more. Then just come and follow me. There's actually no religious rules to follow Jesus. And we actually learned that from the Magi, by the way. (laughs) These pagan priests, occultic practices, but they come and worship Jesus. So it's not about being the right person or a good person to come and follow Jesus. That is, follow his teachings. He said, if you're hungry, come and follow me. Again, he used another metaphor. And another one he said, he said, if you're weary, if you feel like life is killing you, you just can't carry it. He says, I'll take your load from you and you take my load. In other words, you follow the way I instruct of how to get and navigate through this life. That's just, you can't make it any more simple. There's no do's, don'ts, religious requirements to come and follow Jesus than that. Now, he'll change you. No doubt about that, he's changed me. But that's a journey. That's walking with him for the rest of your life. So just close your eyes for a moment. If that's you, if you've never made a choice to follow Jesus, and I've explained how easy Jesus accepts us, he just says, come to me. You want to do that today at Christmas? What a great time to make a decision to follow Jesus. Just put your hand up for a moment. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. Just everyone keep your eyes closed. Anyone who wants to make that decision, at least to make that inquiry today. Thank you, Lord. If you want to have a conversation with me, I'm happy to chat to you about more about who Jesus is and what he taught about living after we're finished. I want to finish with a prayer. So let's keep our eyes closed, just just for focusing and no distractions. Jesus, you coming to earth 2,000 years ago has transformed our lives today, 2,000 years later. In this church, in our lives, we're not following you for what we can get from you. We just want to worship you and keep pursuing you because we know from the inside out you've changed us. You've forgiven us our sins, any wrongdoing. You've filled us with your Holy Spirit and you've made the only way to God the Father. And this Christmas, we want to thank you for giving up your life on that cross. We know without without the Christmas story, there's no crucifixion or resurrection. One leads to the other. But you overcame where we could not have overcome. And so, Father God, we thank you for sending your free gift, your son, to us. And Lord, as we worship you this Christmas, may we keep you at the centre of our lives. We'll enjoy our family, our gift giving, lots of food and celebration, being together, enjoy holidays, summer. But Lord, without you, our lives would not be where they are today. And we are so grateful for that. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.